Before I introduce our keynote, I wanted to acknowledge uh, Will Hoagland and his team in the booth in the back of the room um, for making that, that happen. So, so, so maybe, maybe Will did more to reduce the carbon footprint of this event than any of us. So thank you, Will, and your team. Really appreciate it. So um, it, is my, um, it, it is my pleasure to introduce our, our keynote, Ken Alex. Um, many of you, I would assume many or all of you, either know Ken or know of Ken. Um, he's Senior Policy Advisor to Governor Brown and uh, Director of the Governor's Office of Planning and Research. Before joining, joining the Governor's Office, uh, Ken was a Senior as Assistant Attorney General heading the Environment Section of the California Attorney General's Office and co-lead, or excuse me, co-head of the Office's Global Warming Unit. He was involved in lots of litigation related to energy, climate, he, he's done uh, quite a bit. But I would say that his most important accomplishment is that he is a Board of Advisors member of the Energy Policy Initiative Center. And I'm sure that's always his crowning achievement when he uh, thinks about his career to this point. So, um, and a UC Santa Cruz, yeah, I was gonna, there was another connection there, lots of connections here. So um, please join me in welcoming Ken Alex. So good, good afternoon. Thanks for hanging around. I appreciate it. Uh, it's, uh, it's nice to have some people to talk to. <laughs> I have to say, I, I was sitting, I, I, I've managed to be here much of the day and really an excellent set of panels and I thank the speakers. I learned quite a bit. I was thinking to myself as I was sitting, sitting there that the last time, I, I can't even remember the last time I had a couple of hours to actually sit and listen to people, um, and which is, I suppose, an indictment of our entire system that, you know, I, I'm in a position to uh, work on these issues, but I don't actually have time to think about them. <laughs> um, let me uh, thank uh, both Leslie and Scott uh, and the law school and Epic for sponsoring this. It's uh, the fourth annual and from uh, I, I had the chance to speak uh, at the very first one which I enjoyed very much and thank you for inviting me back. I appreciate it. I think the uh, it, it's extremely well received and I, I think you're doing a great job with the topics and uh, really engage in a serious way and I appreciate that. So what I, I thought I would do today um, is step back a little bit and, and walk you through some aspects of the California energy situation, uh, give you kind of a view of it. Um, and we can talk about where distributed generation and some of the issues surrounding that fits into this. Uh, and then I just wanna identify uh, in, the, in the distributed generation space, perhaps about four potential game changers uh, that I just want to talk to you about. We've heard a lot about some of the serious issues and barriers which are very real and that, that I feel every day in trying to move forward with the governor's goals to get to 12,000 megawatts in California and I'll, I'll mention that uh, in a bit as well. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit, since I'm the wrap-up speaker, uh, about some of the opportunities and some of the potential to change uh, the dynamic and move forward. And I also, you know, I think uh, in California we have moved forward and in talking to some folks from out of state, I think they're always surprised 
at the nature of the dialogue in California may be a little different than elsewhere, that we moved a little bit farther than other places in the U.S., which is one reason why it concerns me when we talk about maybe having a federal standard only. California may be concerned about that. Okay, so let me just run through some slides just to give some context. So, okay, let's start with consumption by sector. This is interesting in part because I work for Jerry Brown, and one of the things as a result that I always say is, you know, California energy consumption per capita since he was the governor the first time in the 70s has basically in California remained the same, while the rest of the United States has gone up about 50% per capita. That's no small thing, and it is pretty directly attributable to the governor's actions when he was governor before. This is sort of bred in his bone. TCU, just since that's sitting there, I don't really know what that means other than it's not Texas Christian University. Is that right? Okay, all right, well, this is why I come to these conferences. But anyway, you can see it's an interesting mix where we've increased and where we've remained the same, and there obviously are reasons for that, and we hope to increase the bottom line substantially, as I'll talk about in a minute. So, what am I clicking here? Or you can just stand back and kind of like, yeah, there you go. Just click the left hand button. Where am I clicking? Right hand button? There we go. Okay, so this is installed capacity in California, and you can see there's 75,000 megawatts or so installed capacity. Some of the things that are interesting to note, the very bottom line is coal. There is coal in California. That will end because most of that is LADWP, and their contract ends in 2015. So that will go away. But it's interesting, large hydro is pretty stable, as you can tell, and look how much natural gas there is. That is a risk in this state. Right now it's paying significant dividends because of the reduction in cost and price, and every time we go to think that we know something about what the natural gas price is going to be, we're wrong. So I think a few years ago, towards the end of the energy crisis, I think the belief was that natural gas prices were going to skyrocket. Today the rhetoric is natural gas prices are going to be $2 to $3 for the foreseeable future. I take it with a grain of salt, but for the moment it's actually having a beneficial impact overall, reducing the viability of coal, reducing costs overall as we do some of the transition that has some additional costs, so it's pretty helpful. But it's interesting to see where we are and how little solar is the second to the top, the very thin yellow line. That's 2010. I'll show you in some slides in a minute. That's going to change really substantially and pretty quickly. 
Okay, I, I, I'll, these are a little too small. So um, this is just uh, to illustrate that the, the three IOUs, there, anybody from out of state, there are three investor-owned utilities that make up a, a very significant percentage of the power uh, delivery in California. All of them, as of 2011, were over 20%, and now they've uh, pretty quickly moved very close to 25%, so we're, we're making progress. Um, these are permitted renewable projects in 2010 to 2011. Um, as you can see at the very bottom, uh, 16,000 megawatts of permits. Land permits do not reflect reality. <laughs> Uh, these will not all proceed. Um, things that, projects without PPAs are, have a lot of difficulty, but it, it should show you the very significant amount of activity, um, and particularly uh, uh, Kern County. Kern County has been by far the most successful county in California uh, in permitting renewables, and there, there are a number of reasons for that. Some of, some of this is fascinating, though, because Kern is also the biggest oil-producing county in California. They, they, it's a pretty conservative, politically, politically conservative area, but uh, their planning department has a lot of foresight. And they have seen that uh, the future uh, in energy production is not necessarily oil. And they have... Uh, changed the political dynamic in that county, uh, a pretty conservative senator from the, the, that area, Senator Runner, voted in favor of the 33% renewable portfolio standard uh, last year. And I think without the uh, observation that her county uh, was one of the leaders in renewable energy, that would not have occurred. So uh, it's an interesting uh, situation in Kern. Those are mostly large scale. Um, these are uh, with PPA, so almost 10,000 megawatts with PPA through uh, earlier this year. That's a lot of megawatts. So we're going to see when you have a PPA, the odds go very substantially up that these projects are not all of them will get built, but a lot more of them with PPAs than uh, otherwise. So these are, these are more real. Uh, let's see, install capacity. Okay, so the, the, I'll skip this one. Some of these we don't need. Okay, so here's, here's something that we would like to change. Um, demand response in California so far, I would say, is not terribly successful. Uh, and not terribly good. Um, part of that is uh, because demand response is, is kind of um, uh, fuzzy, <laughs> shall we say. Uh, the requirements aren't clear, uh, the, the, the bidding isn't clear, the, it, the market mechanism isn't clear. We have to do a lot more in distributed, uh, in demand response. The estimates projected for demand response are minuscule. And we heard, you know, some of the discussion earlier of, of the really substantial possibilities for demand response. So this is something that, that uh, certainly my office uh, is very interested in. I know the PUC is interested in it. And I think we're going to see a, a lot more effort to try to figure this out. Um, and uh, PJM has a, a better demand response 
operation than we do and of course given that we do based on competition as somebody noted we'll have to do something about that ok so this is from 2011 combined heat and power generation which we haven't really talked about today is another form of distributed generation and for which there are state goals and you can see our goal we have a ways to go and there has been more over the past year but this is gone more slowly again than I think we would like to see ultimately and it's an area where we think investment really pays off fairly quickly in a lot of circumstances so we'll be putting some effort into improving this as well alright so this is by utility somebody did these charts and it probably wasn't worth a chart for the number of existing charging stations and in fact I think I have two slides on this so so we have this is as of November 2011 what is that 4600 alright so now we've got this is estimated plug-in electric vehicles sold in California in 2011 okay so we've gone well past 10,000 and I'll come back to EVs in a minute because I think there are different ways to talk about EVs in relation to distributed generation between plug-in hybrids and purely electric vehicles last month well so California makes up about 40 percent of 30 to 40 percent of the market in the US and we expect to get over 50,000 vehicles sometime towards the end of the summer sometime in the fall next year that's not nothing okay okay energy storage we've talked about a little bit but I want to paint the picture and this is again 2011 it's changed a bit and I think it's another area both in distributed form and in in larger scale that is going to change pretty radically fairly quickly I think people may not recognize that it's becoming a lot more cost competitive more quickly than people probably think but right now it's all pumped hydro and here's a distribution of that so you know again 4,000 megawatts that's getting towards 10% we need to see a fair amount more and we need to see it in a distributed way this is a pretty big area of interest for this administration when the governor was attorney general which he was before he was governor actually and after he was governor he the one bill that he sponsored in the legislature had to do with storage and proceedings are going forward at the PUC as we speak and I think there there will be a fair amount of interest in that over the next year I've been told these are slightly wrong so don't don't hold me to these I will update them the next time I do one of these talks but this gives you an idea of last year how much distributed generation is in place what's authorized and how we are doing towards getting to our goal of 12,000 megawatts we're 
you know, there's a fair amount. <laughs> All right, so I, I, we've heard a lot about distributed generation and, and why it's relevant and important, and these are just kind of laying out some of the things you've heard all day uh, and why we're very interested in it. Um, and, and again, you've heard a lot about challenges, so I'll flip through these slides quickly. Um, clearly, we have planning and integration issues, uh, very numerous. Uh, queuing issues and interconnection issues and permitting, well, permitting I put in separately, here you go. Um, the interconnection set of issues. Uh, the, the Rule 21 settlement and negotiation process, uh, part one of that has been completed uh, very recently at the PUC. We'll see how that goes. Uh, I think we are expecting the interconnection set of issues to to start to ease a bit, and there's more Rule 21 settlement proceedings that are going forward, uh, and we hope to see uh, hopefully more settlement as well. Uh, permitting, we've talked about. So, our, oh, okay, financing I'll get back to. <laughs> All right, so let me, I, that, that was just to kind of give you a little context here in California, and I want to, I'm just looking at my watch. I want to make sure, since you all stayed, that we have some time to do some questions as well. But, but let me talk about a few potential game changers uh, just to, to think about and um, you know, maybe give you some, some new ideas uh, uh, as you leave here today. So the first is um, transparency. I think distributed generation is absolutely dependent on information. And so I, I was interested to hear the gentleman from SDG&E this morning talk about the markets and, and his very substantial interest in having transparency. Well, I, I agree with that, and, but what I have found uh, is that often the utilities are very interested in transparency of the other part of the market and not so interested in being transparent about their part of the market. And I think we really have to, to pay attention to that. We need both. And uh, there are some pretty big efforts to get there, finally. Uh, I've been working on this and thinking about it for a number of years. Um, UCLA uh, is going to publish an interactive map uh, in, uh, for energy usage in Los Angeles. They've been working very closely with LADWP, and they are uh, able to aggregate and disaggregate uh, personal information so that privacy issues are addressed. And they have very extensive data about buildings, about residences, about locations, about usage, about load, all kinds of very, very interesting data and information, and I expect it to be out uh, very early next year. Uh, you should dive into it. Um, and I think that it uh, offers, first of all, I think, first, hats off to LADWP. They operate under some different rules than the IOUs. The IOUs have some statutory obligations vis-a-vis -vis privacy that uh, hopefully we can work through. Uh, but the, the upshot of it is that I think LADWP has, has recognized that getting this data out actually generate some marketing opportunities. And, and uh, I think there will be 
there's been some discussion today about some possibilities like aggregators. Um, where is the energy being used? So um, that's one very big set of issues that uh, I think transparency will help. For distributed generation, we don't know enough about the distribution system that, that the utilities operate. Where's the load? Where are the problems with the distribution system? What, what kinds of things can we do about having incentives that go to load areas? Um, and, and how do we figure that out in a way uh, that the PUC can oversee and that the public can feel uh, comfortable with? So I am very, very interested uh, in seeing ab about having more information. Um, and the PUC is, is uh, moving towards uh, proceeding on the set of, uh, of issues. Um, as I say, UCLA will move this discussion forward pretty substantially. Um, and I uh, also am working with the Goldman School uh, at UC Berkeley to, to look at some of the policy implications uh, and where we might go with some of these issues. So uh, uh, I, I think there's a lot to be done here, and I think it could change uh, how we think about distributed generation once we have some more information. Okay, so my, my second one, uh, EVs, electric vehicles. California by itself is the third largest auto market in the world uh, behind the U.S. and China. <laughs> uh, and it, as I said, I think uh, for electric vehicles right now, uh, 30 to 40 percent of them are sold in California. Um, the PUC just completed and FERC just approved a settlement with NRG to provide uh, 10,000 make-ready uh, charging stations and 200 fast charging stations in the state of California over the next couple of years. That's exponential. And, the, uh, and by the way, that, that was a settlement that uh, was resolving energy crisis uh, issues between the state of California and, and NRG from, the, from 2000 and 2001. It took a little while. Um, I spent six years of my life working on that, so I'm glad it's still going on. <laughs> the timing of the settlement, though, is great. We, we are finally getting to critical mass with electric vehicles. Uh, and with charging stations. Okay, so this has a lot of implications for distributed generation. Um, some of it is, is vehicle to grid. Uh, some of it is uh, storage capabilities that are different. Some of it is the aggregation set of issues that we heard about earlier today. Um, there are, and for local governments to start thinking about how they operate fleets. Uh, what do you do about uh, uh, storage? I just, uh, somebody uh, just told me that Bloom Energy, which makes Bloom boxes, is thinking about using Bloom boxes for, um, uh, for uh, charging stations. Well, that's interesting. That's a form of storage. Now, we can talk about what the source of, of methane is to be, produce hydrogen, and, and that, that's an important set of issues. But if you, if you start thinking about that as a storage system uh, that doesn't need to be immediately on the grid, well, okay, that's a form of distributed en energy and, and storage. So there, there are many possibilities. Uh, and I think uh, electric vehicles are probably farther along than you recognize. And if we're going to get to 50,000 
in the middle of next year, towards the end of next year, uh, then you start to talk exponentially greater numbers, particularly if we get fairly uh, good at doing some of the infrastructure at the local level. Okay. Uh, third game changer, uh, San Onofre. So this should uh, ring a bell with those of you who are from the area. And for those of you who aren't, the San Onofre nuclear power plant, which is uh, just north of here, uh, 20 miles, 30 miles, right off the freeway if you want to take a view, um, is, has been down. 2,100, 2,200 megawatts has been offline for many, many months, including uh, the entire summer. Um, well, I, I think before that happened, uh, I think that the, the general wisdom was that we could not survive that. It's in an in interesting load pocket. It, it poses a lot of difficulties. And I don't want to suggest that we breeze through the summer, although I see Bill here, who may disagree with me, he thinks we breeze through. Um, but we did make it through the summer. Uh, it wasn't a brutally hot summer, but we, it, you know, there were stretches uh, which put a lot of stress on the system without San Onofre. Uh, it's going to get harder next summer because uh, there were certain resources available this year that are, will not, will be offline next year. But okay, here's an interesting opportunity. There, there are issues of load uh, in this area, in, in San Diego and, and southern uh, uh, Orange County. Um, why not look at this as an opportunity to talk about some of the issues that have, we've talked about today? Uh, demand response. What about thinking about uh, locational pricing uh, in this area as a pilot program? Uh, what about um, having incentives, maybe some form of a feed-in tariff, for uh, distributed generation in, in various forms? Maybe storage, maybe rooftop solar, maybe community solar. Um, it strikes me that there's some opportunities, and there are a lot of people talking about this, uh, and there hopefully is action being considered and, and moved forward. Uh, but I think it poses uh, an opportunity to think about distributed generation issues in a very real-world way uh, in, a, in a situation where we may want and may need to uh, do it in a, in a faster than a uh, usual bureaucratic process. Okay. And then my, the final one I wanted to mention uh, is financing. Now, it's, it's interesting to me, most of the day I didn't hear much about financing. I think it's in some ways the most uh, important piece uh, because if we can't finance it, it's not going to happen. Um, but there are many interesting possibilities. I think it's really the key. Um, think about rooftop solar. Uh, and, and there was a, a, a chart set up, um, uh, that, uh, one of the slides from the earlier presentation showed how important it was when uh, the leasing notion uh, that has really taken over with the industry uh, was put in place all of a sudden it became viable, regardless of your political view of any of this, it became uh, financially viable for homeowners to put this on, on their roofs. 
So uh, there are all kinds of possibilities for financing uh, that need to be explored. How do we uh, deal with the upfront cost of, of electric vehicles? They cost more uh, upfront, but they cost less over their lifetime. Are there ways to address that? Are, are the batteries of electric vehicles perhaps worth something to utilities that they might be financed, that maybe that reduces the cost up front uh, if, the, if the utilities, just as an example, own those batteries and receive them and use them for storage in a distributed way at the other end? Okay, so that's, that's an idea. Um, one thing that the, the governor is extremely interested in is PACE. Um, many of you are familiar with PACE. Uh, it's the idea that um, you can pay the upfront costs. Municipal bonds can fund the upfront costs of uh, either retrofits or, or distributed generation like solar on rooftops. Um, that has pretty much been killed uh, by the, the Fannie and Freddie's policies, which preclude Fannie and Freddie from buying uh, house, uh, mortgages that have PACE liens because the liens get first priority. Um, the governor has, is a very big supporter of PACE. We're gonna take another run at the uh, Obama administration. One thing that we're thinking about is in light of cap and trade and Prop 39 dollars, perhaps we can fund some form of insurance that guarantees uh, payment uh, uh, if there's a default. Um, maybe that is, is a way to move this into a different realm. Um, okay, so I, I bring that up to, uh, to spark some thoughts. We're, we're very interested in different financing uh, for distributed generation to break down these upfront cost barriers. And I think that it, it, it has a potential to really change things if we can get it right. So uh, I don't want to suggest uh, that the, uh, all of this is not hard. <laughs> Uh, I've been in my job for two years. It's hard. <laughs> I, I recognize that. Um, but I think that distributed generation, uh, renewable energy, electric vehicles, uh, they, they have the potential to change our relationship to the power grid, uh, to uh, issues of, of air pollution. Uh, and, you know, it's not necessarily the holy grail, but I think it it really has the potential uh, to be pretty earth-changing. So uh, that's my hopeful note, and I'm happy to, to talk to you all and uh, answer some questions if you have any. Okay. I, I know this young lady. <laughs> <laughs> um, and congratulations on the election. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Um, I have a question um, that is a policy question. Um, I agree that San Onofre not operating is a wonderful opportunity for Southern California to switch its energy paradigm to an old, uh, not necessarily reliable at the moment, uh, technology that's leaving along a lot of waste that's going to sit on our coast forever. So we have one law on the books that prevents the state from making the mistake again, Public Resource Code 25524, which doesn't allow new nuclear power plants to build, be built because of the waste. Um, because we now know that the federal government doesn't have a policy on waste and is back in the courts again on anything, could we amend 
Public Resource Code 25524 to say you cannot relicense a nuclear power plant unless there's a solution to radioactive waste, thereby putting the, the two IOUs on notice that more investments in this aging technology that leaves 2,200 megawatts absent like that um, isn't necessarily a great investment. Um, so for, for those of you who don't know Rochelle, she, she knows more about this subject by far than I will ever know. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I'll, I'll just have it reflected as a rhetorical question that, that it's uh, certainly worth considering. And I'm guessing that uh, you will bring it up in the uh, uh, forums that have some ability to consider it. One, one thing just uh, as an observation, um, there will be proceedings at the PUC uh, because there's another uh, uh, statutory provision that says if a power plant is not operating for a certain amount of time, the PUC has to evaluate whether ratepayers should be paying uh, the cost of that plant. And uh, they're getting there uh, in terms of the time they've been offline. So, so some of this will be aired in that forum. I would just add that I think that the federal preemption issues that are playing out in the Vermont Yankee case right now are um, worth considering. And if anything, the Public Utilities Code Section 851 in the state, which has a very broad public purpose set of criteria, would be a more effective means to achieve that within, under state law without encountering the preemption issue at the federal level. Who knew this was going to be a, a nuclear uh, discussion? <laughs> Other questions? Wow, we wore you out. <laughs> Go ahead, right in the front. First, I'm glad you mentioned feed-in tariff. I know SB 32, I don't know what the status of it is, but uh, my concern is if a price point is set on that, that it be high enough to actually do what it's intended to do, which is to bring in entrepreneurs, investors, to do decentralized renewable energy rather than utility scale. Uh, secondly, I'm very pleased that the governor is a advocate of PACE, or property that says clean energy. And it's my understanding that Senate Bill 555, which comes under the Melrose provision, is moving that forward and that Sacramento is poised to be the first city in California to roll out a uh, up-and-running PACE program using SB 555. That, uh, so starting with the PACE, I mean, that, the, the 555 provision is a new twist. Um, both uh, Sonoma County has continued with its PACE program under the old concept. And so is the city of uh, Riverside, interestingly enough, They've, and both have been pretty successful. Um, I uh, will follow the Sacramento version as well. Commercial pace is not constrained by the same problem. That is now in operation in 41 jurisdictions in the state of California. The initial, just for the past couple of months, it, it's initially going well. There are $5 million in projects already, and we expect to see that accelerate. So it's, it's an effective program. 
uh, and you know we'll see uh, we'll see where we go. The the SB 32 proceeding uh, with the feed-in tariff, it, it's a, it's an effort in progress. Uh, I think Ed probably knows a fair amount more about it at this point than I do. We're watching it. Um, you know, I think it's going to be tweaked, and and hopefully we'll we'll get to a, a place where it works. I saw somebody in the back. Oh. oh. I have a question about uh, the politics of distributed power, um, and I, perhaps everybody else in the room knows this and I don't. I mean, I know that sometimes the legal structure incentivizes utilities in a way that would make them uh, not be favorably inclined to support legal to support uh, distributed power, and I'm just wondering how, how we're doing in California on that in terms of the incentives that we're giving utilities and the extent to which uh, the uh, large actors are on board with some of the changes that we legal changes that we need to make. Well, obviously, it's a, a better question in a lot of ways for the utilities, but I'll, I'll give you my observations. There, there are three different utility large-scale IOUs. They have different views on on different aspects of the subject. You heard one today. SDG&E is not a big fan of of net metering. <laughs> um, that's probably true. The other two IOUs as well. Um, PG&E hates community choice aggregation. The, the other two are not as upset about it. <laughs> um, some of them uh, like aspects of uh, distributed generation. Some of them hate aspects of, of it. What, what was interesting to me in the SDG&E presentation was an acknowledgement that they have to look at a different business model. And I think that's great. That, that discussion needs to go forward. Um, and then the discussion of rates, I think, is very real. And uh, it, it's going to be going over the next year or two. What, what you know, uh, does the tiered rate system work? Do we need dynamic pricing? What else, time, you know, what, what other things do we need to look at? And, and uh, very legitimately, uh, should we consider um, certain fees? Um, that can be charged for, for um, portions of the bill. I, I think that has to be looked at because it, it is right now utilities, the current model is not going to work in this new regime. What do you do with EVs? Um, how does that play into all this? How do we move load to different places? Um, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, it's hard to be to think through as a utility what the business model is going to be because it's got to change. So just, and maybe this is uh, the answer by what you said, but I'm just trying to think, are there, are there legal changes? What legal changes can we make to properly incentivize the utilities to be on board with this? Well, that's a, it's an ongoing conversation, and I don't think there's, there's a single answer because there, there are many state policies related to distributed generation. So um, there, there are, you know, SDG&E, for example, uh, owns a bunch of rooftop solar. Well, that's interesting. The other utilities have chosen not to. Um, is that the right way to go? I don't know. Maybe we need some time to work this through. Some policies are supported. Uh, some are not. Somebody mentioned that uh, 1990 was opposed by at least some of the utilities. Um, you know, community solar, well, maybe there's opportunities there for utilities. What, what about 
the distribution system uh, and, and operation of that, how should that be done? Is the CCA model one that once PG&E gets over its very strong reaction to it, is it something that they can work with and build into their model? It's a, it's a series of complex questions and I think it depends on which issue it is, where they'll be. Um, one way to jumpstart um, technologies that perhaps are, um, have received less attention or are lagging in transitioning to, um, to mass approval is for government to get involved. Is Governor Brown um, considering any initiatives to, for example, encourage um, CHP at state facilities or take other um, you know, actions to get the state more involved? in moving uh, some of these technologies forward? Uh, as a matter of fact, that's part of uh, an executive order that already exists, and you're absolutely right. State facilities and other governmental facilities, um, there, there's uh, an executive order on green building that uh, requires uh, state buildings to be much more energy efficient and also use renewables under certain conditions and also use EVs um, and there's an EV executive order. Uh, in, in addition, Prop 39, which just passed by, with 60% of the vote, uh, will provide about $500 million a year for five years. And the priority it, in Prop 39 uh, is for schools and for state buildings. So we're looking very, very carefully and, and not to just, we, we actually want to look very carefully to see if we can finance it so that it's a revolving fund so that it, the money goes uh, a, a long way. There are 1,100 school districts all separately run in the state of California, 10,000 schools. Uh, it's a target-rich environment uh, without the ability to, in many instances, they don't have the wherewithal to, to proceed. They don't have the, the skills and the, the people to actually figure out where they, if they went to uh, renewables and if they did uh, you know, distributed generation, uh, they don't have the people to figure out that it would save them money. So one thing that we're looking at is can we actually hire consultants on their behalf that would then be able to figure out the financing, make this a revolving fund, help the schools, reduce their costs, allow them to have more budget for education. So I think we're going to see in the, over the next six months, nine months, a lot of uh, activity in this area. So I think a couple more and I'll, we'll quit. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask you about solar highways. Um, ah. These are, I'm talking about the facilities where there's uh, solar installed in the right of way. Yes. Um, or vacant areas of the right of way. And there's one project that was down in San Jose. I think it was Republic Solar Highways. Yes. It was uh, done on a certain amount of grant funding. And I believe there was another one that SMUD was doing up on US 50 there, which. Uh, you are well informed. <laughs> Uh, I was just wondering whether there, uh, you had any information on why uh, the SMUD project didn't succeed or, or didn't go forward and uh, whether there's any kind of solution to that. Uh. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, the SMUD project actually may still go forward. We're, they're still trying to do it. Um, I, I had this 
I, I really uh, thought this was going to be pretty significant. You've got all this right-of-way, you've got endless places potentially to, to put uh, solar along highways. Oregon has done some of this. Um, so we looked into it quite extensively. Uh, there, there turns out to be, of course, endless sets of issues. One is it's a lot harder to do a solar project in a linear way. Uh, you string it along and you have some physics problems. <laughs> um, so that's one. Uh, it turns out that uh, the Caltrans uh, sees all areas of highways, including open space, as an active portion of their highway. And I, I don't discount, I'm not suggesting they're wrong, because as they explained it to us, there, there are a lot of reasons that they need certain open areas that uh, the um, solar panels give problems uh, for. There's issues of access, there's issues of liability, there's issues of what happens in 10 years if you need to widen the road and you have to move uh, the, the, the panels, on and on and on and on. Anyway, it, it uh, I spent a fair amount of time working on this. <laughs> and uh, the other thing that, that has occurred, honestly, is the price of solar has come down, and so it's made a lot of other locations more viable, whereas the set of issues that you confront with uh, right-of-way tends to keep the price high. So uh, there may still be a place to go here, but it, it wasn't what I had hoped. I think we'll have to leave it there. All right. Thank, Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Well, thank to all of you for hanging in to the end. I'd like to thank all of our speakers, moderators, uh, again, the, the folks in the crew in the back, all the students that help organize. Um, we really appreciate your being here. We hope you can join us um, for our, our last potluck. Um, we're going to have some libations and, and uh, hors d'oeuvres. And uh, we hope to see you next year. So thanks again for coming. <laughs>